0: The New Statesman. Hello and welcome to the latest Spotlight podcast brought to you in association with PwC, the professional services firm. I'm Sarah Darwood, Special Projects Writer at The New Statesman, and I'm joined today by Hugh Thomas, Councillor and Leader of Cardiff Council, Karen Finlayson, partner at PwC and the firm's Regions Leader for UK Government and Health, and Katie Trout, who is Director of Policy and Partnerships at West Midlands Growth Company, an economic development agency for the West Midlands Combined Authority Area. Hugh, Karen, Katie, welcome to the podcast and thanks so much for being here today. So today we're going to be talking about placemaking. Placemaking is the process of creating quality places that people want to live, work, play and learn in. And it can contribute significantly to the UK's productivity. It revitalises public spaces leading to economic benefits such as increased employment and societal benefits such as greater access to culture and improved health. The regeneration of London's King's Cross for example has created thousands of jobs and homes, engaged dozens of schools in cultural enrichment and generated an annual gross value added of £1.42 billion. But as the cost of living crisis continues regions vary wildly in their prosperity across factors such as income, work-life balance, safety, health and jobs. Today we're going to be discussing what placemaking can do for cities, how its benefits can be spread evenly across the country and the challenges surrounding regeneration projects. A question to start for all of our guests. Placemaking can be a confusing term with multiple definitions. How would you define it? And let's start with Hugh on that one.
1: I think to me, very simply, it boils down to placemaking is creating spaces for people. I think in the past, we've been very good in this country about creating spaces that are not um, friendly for people to be in and, and often dominated by cars in particular. So I see placemaking really as creating spaces that people want to spend time in, whether that's for work to live in or, or for leisure. And in doing that, you yes, there is a clear economic benefit. There is cultural upside. You are supporting businesses, retail, leisure destinations in that area. But fundamentally, you're creating spaces that it's nice to be in for people.
0: That's great. Thank you, Hugh. Karen, how would you define it?
2: Yeah. Hi. So for me, I'll keep it relatively brief because we've had some good explanations already. But for me, placemaking is where you get the public and the private sector and the voluntary sectors all coming together with a, an invested interest to increase growth and prosperity to improve the local community in that place. And that can be through business, that can be through improving skills, it can be through creating green spaces, as you described, around where, places where people want to live and work. But it's all about think, enhancing the prosperity of that local community.
0: That's wonderful. Thanks. And Katie? Hi, so I agree very much with what Karen
3: and Hugh have said there. So for me, placemaking is about adopting that people focused approach to development. It's really about improving the quality of public spaces for the benefit for everybody who uses them. So as Hugh said, it's for people who may live, learn, earn, play or indeed visit. And it's about thinking about everybody and how they want to use that space. I think it's also about communities being at the heart of designing or indeed reimagining how spaces can be used in order to maximise the shared value. And I think this can come in many different forms. So for us as a Westminster Growth Company, it's very much about understanding how any investment that we're able to bring into a place or a a specific area can deliver the greatest impact for the local people and the local
0: businesses that are there. That's brilliant. Thank you. So what are some good examples of placemaking in the UK? And what economic and wider societal benefits have they brought to their cities? Perhaps you can all think of a good example. Hugh, would you like to start?
1: I'm going to have to go with an example in Cardiff, aren't I, given that I'm the leader of Cardiff? And we'll talk about many, I'm sure, during this podcast. But, you know, one area that stands out for me in Cardiff is the work that's been happening in the central business district over the last seven years, really. A tired old station and some pretty run-down public spaces has been transformed, centrepiece of which is the new headquarters for uh, BBC Wales, putting the creative industries at the heart of our city centre, literally a stone's throw from our main train station in the city but also creating a public realm that people can spend time in and encouraging foot and creating a space that's welcoming when people arrive in Cardiff by train for the first time. That that would certainly be up there I would argue anyway.
0: That's wonderful and very fitting of course to choose one from your city. Karen, what example would you give?
2: So I'll bring it a bit closer to home for me. And I was fortunate enough actually to visit Cardiff a la- bit last week, actually. I've not been there for a while and it's a, a beautiful city. It's a great transformation. So I'll use Bradford, which we, we put a spotlight on for a number of years in our local community. It's been underinvested quite a lot in terms of our region. It's surrounded by some big major cities in the north. And so I think and there's been quite a lot of investment in terms of professional services, for example, some real household names and brands. And I think it's really um, exciting, actually, it's a real opportunity for Bradford going forward that they've got the City of Culture in 2025, which will bring inevitably an enhanced profile. It will also bring investment. It will also bring jobs, tourism, uh, that footfall. And I know there's been quite a significant investment in creating some of those green spaces. We know that the entertainment industry has been, has had a massive boost post the pandemic. And again, obviously, they'll, they will benefit from that. So I do think they have a very young population. So I do think they've got a fantastic opportunity to tap into that younger population and to use that to stimulate the growth and also to create those jobs, better skilled jobs within their local community. So I think that's a great example of a city that's really investing in itself to help itself grow.
0: Yeah, that's a brilliant example. Thank you. Katie, what would you choose? So I could pick a number of
3: different examples from across the West Midlands, but I wanted to choose one that was in Birmingham, Digbus. So this was an area that was once home to hundreds of small specialist engineering and manufacturing firms. And after a long period of decline, really, with a number of those firms ceasing activity or reducing it, it started to emerge as one of the city's alternative areas for employment and entertainment. So this began with the redevelopment of what was the former Bird's Custard Factory and has also seen the repurposing of a number of other former industrial buildings and civic buildings. And those have become now restaurants and bars and workplaces. And it's really now the home of a burgeoning creative and digital sector here and is regularly voted as one of the UK's best places to live. And I think its success story has been very much had the private and the public sector collaboration at its heart. And there's been a number of principles that have guided the transformation of this area. So one of those has been around trying to refurbish and reuse the historic buildings that are based there. Another one is about being able to celebrate the contemporary culture. So very much going with the grain of the area and trying to maintain the grit that Digbeth has. And the third has been about trying to better use the public space and make more of the canals and waterways that flow through that part of Birmingham. The planned arrival of High Speed 2 at Curzon Street has very much accelerated this regeneration. So all of that has come together to really put DIGBUS on the map. There's an awful lot more that the City Council and other partners want to do in the area, but I think it shows the benefit and the, the real potential around placemaking and what it can achieve.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you. And you mentioned the involvement of the private sector there, which is something we're going to come to a little bit later in this podcast. So that's a really interesting point. Hugh, I want to um, move on a little bit from what you were saying around Cardiff and the placemaking that's been happening there. In 2015, Cardiff Council released the Liverpool Design Guide, which set out how Cardiff would become Europe's most livable capital city. I'm interested to know, to what extent do you think this has been achieved? And, um, tell us a bit more about the regeneration that's happened in the city.
1: One thing that I think it's important to stress is that uh, regeneration is a never-ending story. I think cities are in a constant process of of reinvention and regeneration and working through different projects. It always feels like it's a little bit of a work in progress, but I'm also really, really proud when I look back at the last six years of really, how Cardiff has changed during that time. It is changing. And I've mentioned Central Square in the Central Business District already, but there are, there are numerous others. I think of our work on the canal quarter, for example, which is an area to the east of the city centre that has seen declining footfalls of retail and office. And in response, as part of animating that part of the city, what we are doing is taking a road that was covered over in the 1950s. There was a canal running underneath it. We are reopening up that canal, shifting space away from cars putting some investment in to create an area that hopefully people will want to spend time in and active travel in particular. Like many cities ac- across the UK, we've, you've seen segregated cycleways pop up across the city, again, trying to remove cars from our urban area, from the core of, of our urban area and making a place that, that people feel safe walking and cycling around and trying to achieve that modal split, which is important both in terms of placemaking, but also in terms of 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 sustainability. Yeah. All of that I think contributes to that sense of making a place more livable.
0: That's really interesting and really interesting point around the sustainability aspects of it, as well as citizen focused and economic as well. Katie, I'd like to come to you next. So the £1.9 billion Smithfield root generation in Birmingham is transforming the city's former wholesale market site into a new neighbourhood. This is going to feature 3,000 new homes and create 8,000 new jobs This site was also used as a venue for the Commonwealth Games. Can you tell us more about what this new destination is going to bring to Birmingham and also how the Games has contributed to that and helped to boost the West Midlands economy?
3: So the Smith Hill development offers a once in a generation opportunity to reshape the city centre of Birmingham and create a new community at its heart. The site itself covers 17 hectares, so it is a hugely significant site in terms of scale, which Birmingham City Council aims to be an international destination, but one that is very much created and shared by local people. Smithfield is also a strategically important area because it will be a bridge between different parts of the city, like Digbirth, like Southside and the wider city centre. So it's really important that through this site, these areas are managed to be stitched together to allow a flow of people and businesses across the city. In terms of the Commonwealth Games as a whole, they absolutely helped put the city and the bro- broader West Midlands on the global stage. There was an incredible direct economic impact from the Games. Around £870 million pounds was contributed to the UK economy over the two weeks, and over half of that was generated in the West Midlands itself. So the West Midlands Growth Company were responsible for leading an official business and tourism programme that ran alongside the event, and it's been hugely successful. It's very much started to change perceptions of the West Midlands internationally and enabled us to secure over 55 in- inward investment projects to date, which has created about 2,500 jobs and also landed 19 major sporting and business events as well within the region, including helping Birmingham City Council to win the right to host the 2026 European Athletics
0: Championships. That's fantastic and a really interesting summary. Thank you, Katie. You've mentioned a couple of times the importance of co-designing with the community and creating these new places in consultation with the community. So I'd like to talk about this a bit more. While placemaking projects aim to make cities more livable, they can also obviously price out existing communities by making an area more desirable to live and work in. So how do you think, and this is to anyone, any of my guests, how can developers and councils address the challenge of gentrification and ensure new jobs, new homes, these new places are accessible for all? And how does co-designing these spaces come into that?
3: So I think one of the ways of doing this is to make sure that housing that's created on these developments is affordable for local people so they're not priced out of the area. So one of the things the West Midlands does to the combined authority and the local authorities is to insist on a minimum of 20% of new homes that are built in schemes to be affordable. And they use the region's own definition for that, which is very much linked to real world local wages rather than property prices. And this has been successful so far and has actually achieved an average of about 27 percent of affordable housing in each of the developments that have been supported by public funding through this way. The region also operates a brownfield first policy, which means that it seeks to develop on former industrial sites and vacant urban plots rather than utilising greenbelt which tries to ensure that the time that an area plot might lie vacant is minimised, which I think is really important about bringing things more quickly back into public use.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you. Karen or Hugh, do you have any thoughts around how to address this challenge of gentrification and pricing people out?
2: So... The, the housing point and making sure you've got the right balance of affordable housing is really important. So we, we do know that. I think the important part is about the job creation and the skills that are needed within the local place and how private business can play a part in creating that sort of economic benefit and supporting the communities to make sure you don't get the sort of brain drain that we've seen in some of the other major cities and people going to the other major cities and losing some of that sort of intellectual capital that can exist in a local place and also have jobs and live and build that economy. There's some great examples of where that works really well, especially when you're working with universities. We've shown a few spotlights on some major cities, Cardiff's one of them, where we work in partnership with other universities, Birmingham, Belfast, and also in Scotland. So I think it's really important that business play their part to make sure they're creating and investing in the skills that they need to build and grow their businesses, which then get fed back into the communities as well.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with all those points. The the housing piece is key, right? And in Cardiff, we've put a particular focus on delivering not just affordable housing, but actually homes for social rent enabled by Welsh Government. Here, we've been able to spend right to buy in Cardiff. That means we've been able to build council homes for the first time in a generation at scale, nearly 1,000 built over the last five years. Our ambition now is to build a further 4,000 by 2030. And we are building those all over the city, but particularly in communities of high high housing need and that in effect is quite a strong bulwark against gentrification but then it's also about the skills and linking up the companies the businesses that will be investing in in areas that are are becoming more attractive through placemaking linking those businesses up with uh, our young people particularly through the schools in Cardiff we've got a program called Cardiff Commitment I believe PwC are, are signed up to it that has the council brokering the relationship between companies and and our schools particularly schools in some of our more deprived communities and basically being that the, the network that some of these kids don't have by default and opening their eyes to the opportunities that exists with, within the city and that are being created through these investments into into places
0: that's a brilliant point you picked up there Hugh around skills as well as the more tangible aspects such as housing I'd like to talk about another contention to do with placemaking projects, so cost. So, for example, HS2's Euston Terminus alone has now nearly doubled to £4.8 billion since its initial budget. And revised plans mean that trains are not expected to run into Euston until the 2040s, when they were originally scheduled for 2026. So, given these severe delays, high costs, I guess I'd like to know, are these projects worth it in the long run? Do the benefits outweigh the negatives?
1: I think for me, if I can come in, you look at any major European city on the continent or in North America, they are all investing in their infrastructure. I talk to city leaders in in, in various different countries that are tapping into hundreds of millions of euros worth of investment delivered partly through the EU and partly through their central governments for buses, trams, trains in their city. And I think uh, unless in the UK we are prepared to put similar levels of investment in, we will fall behind in in the competitivity ratings. And I think that's the reality we've got to face up to and realise that there is a cost requirement and an investment need. If I'm being provocative, I'd probably say that we are not investing at the levels that competitive cities in in Europe and North America are are doing. And we are a particularly centralised country as well. And that is holding back our cities across the UK as well. So yes, there is a cost and I'm not alone, I think, in decrying how expensive some things can be. And I think there's room to, to look at how we can deliver major infrastructure projects quicker and more effectively. But it's nevertheless something that, that I think the UK has to get its head around in terms of needing to invest.
0: Fascinating. Katie, did you want to come in on that? Are these projects worth it?
3: I very much agree with you there in the sense that we, as a country, need to invest in infrastructure if we are going to realise inclusive good growth. And indeed, actually green growth as well. And that's important, not only just as a country in terms of levelling up, if we're allowed to still use that phrase, but also to remain globally competitive too. So without that, we are not going to be keeping up with our competitors out on that international stage. And if you don't look at something like High Speed 2, there's obviously the key direct benefits of it in terms of capacity and freeing up space on the current network, enabling many more computer journeys to happen. There's also the net zero element too, in terms of trying to address the the largest source of carbon emissions which is transport here in the country and the benefit high speed two will bring for that and also taking freight off the roads there's a whole piece around connectivity as well and, and the regeneration impacts of, of linking different parts of the country together much more quickly and effectively but there's al- there's also added to that significant indirect benefits as well and often I don't think they are always counted in the broader business cases too so there's massive knock-on effects of all these transformational projects as well that I think need to come together to show you that they sort of the benefits against the price tag which they have against them and I again agree with you that we it's not about saying that these things should happen at any cost and we absolutely should be looking at the best way and the most effective way to, to be funding them but we do need to recognize that investment
2: absolutely unlocks an awful lot of benefits in the round
0: that's great thank you so much Karen what are your thoughts
2: I totally agree with both Katie and Hugh. I think it'd be remiss of me not to mention the transport infrastructure or lack of connectivity across the north. Which and I think, So I think I agree with all of it about the investment. We need to keep up with our European counterparts. We need to keep up and make sure we're investing in the right things and realising those benefits and, and especially responding to the green agenda as, as well. Uh, but I think that there is a challenge about the equity of that investment and some of the disparities that have been created about where that goes. But I'm, I am supportive of making sure that we invest in the infrastructure to make sure we are still an attractive country for people to be able to work, travel, live, and invest.
1: And, and if I may, I think we just had to have an honest conversation about the scale of investment that's required. So, for example, Cardiff was successful in the second round of levelling up fund for £50 million, which was in turn much funded by the same amount by the Welsh government. So, £100 million secured to deliver the first phase of um, the Cardiff Crossrail project, which is you know, the introduction of a tram network, or the first piece of a tram network into the city. But that £100 million only buys you so much track. And I, like I said, our competitors are investing in whole networks at the moment. I think what's the levelling up fund has an important part to play in investing in regions and nations across the UK, it is needed at a much greater scale, I would suggest, than what is currently being delivered.
0: And Karen and Katie, you've both mentioned the importance of the private sector involvement in placemaking projects. What do you see as the role of the private sector here? And what is the role of the private sector in, say, financing these projects? Do you think they should ultimately be predominantly fall down to the taxpayer or should the private sector play a key role there? Karen, you might want to start on this one.
2: Yeah, so I think it's it's multiple investors from, so I don't think it all should necessarily fall on the on in the taxpayer. He's mentioned that it's underinvested and I don't think that the private the public sector sorry can af- it's affordable without increasing taxes significantly. So I do think that the private sector have got a part to play in terms of private equity, in terms of where and how they invest. But there has to be those economic benefits or social benefits or financial benefits for that to happen. In terms of from an employer's perspective, we invest heavily in our local communities. So again, we've spent a lot of time thinking about places where we want to build our offices, the skills that we want to tap into, how we can create and support those skills, working with our universities and schools. We think it's important as an employer to have a real important part in terms of the social mobility agenda, which again is an investment in individuals to improve their opportunities and prosperities and open their mind to what is the art of the possible in terms of how they want to take forward their future careers. So in terms of investing in training and supporting in terms of upskilling, which I think is another important element that people don't probably recognise. And I know on HS2, clearly we're underinvested in terms of engineers in this country. So this has provided an excellent opportunity to train engineers and make sure we're investing in the right skills for the future to support that infrastructure going forward in the UK as well. So there's lots of ways that companies and employers and the private sector can invest in terms of some of these major projects.
0: Katie, did you have any thoughts around the role of the private sector? I think it's
2: about
3: us coming together in a genuine partnership and bringing together the best of the public, private and I'd add the academic sectors to that piece as well, because I think economic development and growth is most successful where you get that triumphant of coming together. And I think it's about us all trying to be more creative about how we fund these projects going forward and how public funding is then used to leverage that private sector investment. I do think, though, when it comes down to this infrastructure investment, that there will always need to be quite a significant element of public financing to it. And that's by the very nature of the sorts of funding, sorts of projects, sorry, and how they work. So I think that what's really important is to get into more of a dialogue about how local leaders and regions can have the right fiscal tools at their disposal to be able to for them to think and fund these sorts of activities so it's about moving to a space where there is greater fiscal devolution from Whitehall that whether that be combined authorities whether that be local authorities have the opportunity to raise funding and then choose where that funding goes and how best to invest that because after all they are elected by local people and know know best for how that should be utilized in their areas
0: And on devolution, the West Midlands has just agreed a £1.5 billion devolution deal with the government. So how do you hope to see some of this funding used to improve public spaces across the region, Katie? And you've just mentioned devolution briefly there. What role do you think devolution plays in enabling placemaking projects?
3: So the deeper devolution deal that you mentioned secured a number of wide-ranging powers and greater budget autonomy for the West Midlands Combined Authority. The West Midlands Combined Authority will have a government departmental style single settlement that it will negotiate with government, so in effect a single pot. So this will mean that local leaders will have much greater control about spending on devolved issues and will be able to choose where best to utilise that funding. Really importantly as well, it means that as a region we should avoid some of that very time consuming and expensive competitive processes for trying to secure additional money through from national government. I hope that will big big impact for us on the placemaking front. The deal also, though, secured 100 percent of business rates retention for the region for up to 10 years, which is worth around 450 million. So this gives an opportunity for the combined authority to borrow against future rates in order to invest in economic growth. The other element of the deal that I think is important to really flag in terms of placemaking is that through the negotiation the region secured the opportunity to designate up to six leveling up zones. So these will be zones that will be located across the West Midlands, where there is a need for investment in housing, transport, digital energy infrastructure, but also things like improved skills and public services and cultural activities as well. So I think that's an incredibly exciting development and hopefully it's something that's able to be taken on by other areas through future devolution deals as well.
0: Hugh, what are your thoughts around devolution and the role it plays in enabling placemaking projects? And would you like to see more funding and powers devolved to to Cardiff specifically. Yeah,
1: I was was nodding my head vigorously to when Katie was talking about fiscal devolution, uh, because I think that's really the key. Uh, Again, when you look at uh, North American cities, European cities, many of those will typically retain about 50% of their tax revenues controlled within the city. Whereas for UK cities, the figure is closer to about 7%. So huge discrepancy there. And I think we're starting to see in some of those devolution deals, an unlocking of that potential but it still feels pretty piecemeal at the moment and, and certainly not strategic a, a across the country obviously in in Wales and in Scotland Northern Ireland we've got devolved administrations and they certainly bring greater flexibility closer to the people but I would say here as well there is the opportunity and the challenge to to devolve further and devolve down to cities like Cardiff and to other local councils because I think particularly when it comes to to place making the closer you can Locate the decision taking to to the people. The more likely you are, I think, to come up with a project and scheme that will work and deliver for for that community. The more likely it is, you'll be able to prioritize the investment in in into the right areas as well. I'm certainly a localist when it comes to devolution and the distribution of funding to 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 those councils to make those decisions.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Karen, I want to talk about PwC's Good Growth for Cities Index, which has just been published for this year. So this is an index which looks at at factors that the public deem to be important regarding cities. So what are the most important factors of a prosperous city in the eyes of the public based on that index and which cities have fared well and which have fared poorly?
2: good growth for cities it's our report that we've been publishing annually for the last 11 years so we've got some great data points about what the public consider to be important for social economic economic growth or good socio economic growth and also thinking beyond the traditional metrics for growth around GVA and GDP. So in terms of this year, we've got 12 indicators. It covers a range of areas from income distribution, housing, safety, jobs, health, environment, skills, high stream businesses. But the top three indicators that the public perceived to be the most important were around income distribution, income and safety, and work life balance. And I guess reflecting on the outcomes of that, that didn't really surprise us that most of the priorities or their priorities were around the financial well-being and obviously that work agility that's been created post-pandemic and obviously the impact of the cost of living crisis and how that's impacting people and how they work and where they work. So that didn't surprise us at all. In terms of the areas that were lowest important to the public, and you have to remember this is relative in terms of their importance rather than them not being important at all, was new business, skills, and the high street. So again, they were the lowest bearing index in terms of how the public voted. One of the areas that we see as a strong performer Year on year is Oxford, and you look at some of the, the dynamics around the Oxford. It's got the sort of world-class universities, it's got the natural beauty, it's got diversity, it's got cultural heritage, it's got st- strong tourism, um, which makes it a very attractive place to want to work, live and invest. But on the downside, it's obviously one of the most unaffordable cities And obviously has some similar housing and inequalities and social mobility challenge issues similar to London. With each of the cities, when we've looked at what is driving that growth, we've also looked at some of those economic challenges as well. Bradford, I talked about earlier, came out as one of our highest improvers But there's still obviously quite some levelling up to do, let's say, in terms of that North-South divide, which again, what the data and the the results are showing us is that gap is still there. It's not closing in the way that we would like it to close. And I think some of the examples that Katie and Hugh talked about in terms of devolution and what that should look like is a real key part of our sort of agenda for action, which is a key focus in our report in terms of how you get that interconnectivity and that devolution of the fiscal responsibilities and accountability to a local level.
0: So we know large generation projects tend to be concentrated in major cities. How can we ensure that other cities, smaller cities and towns also benefit from these projects? And ultimately, why is investment in these projects so important for the public?
2: So I think it does come back to the devolution point because what is the focus has and the investment has been in some of the major cities, which and that those choices have been made probably more centrally, is that if local places were given that opportunity to think about how they could invest locally and work together in terms of bringing together the public-private sector, working together in partnership with the communities, then I think we would see growth at a much faster rate than what we're seeing now, rather than putting everything in one, one place. So I do think that is a real key part of unlocking some of the challenges we have around getting equality and closing that gap on the levelling up agenda.
3: Just say I absolutely agree with Karen there, but what I would say is that there is no shortage of ambition in areas outside of the major cities as well. So all the local authority areas in the West Midlands have really ambitious plans for growth. They all rely, as Karen said, on bringing together that strong collaboration of public, private and academic sectors working with communities But the key factor that underpins all of those will be finance, and it will be how does how do we secure that public funding that then can leverage in that private sector resource to make sure those opportunities can really take off for the benefit of everybody. Thank
0: you, and Hugh.
1: Yeah, I think inevitably major regeneration projects will tend to be based in cities as the drivers of economic growth, but that's where I think the connectivity piece and the transport investment is so important, so that. If there's investment going into the core of a city region, you will have the transport options in place so that everybody within that city region can benefit from that uh, From that investment. But I think also placemaking is something that can happen on a micro scale, not just a major regeneration project. Investment from a local council in a park, in a playground, in planting trees, in, in greenifying an area, all of that contributes to placemaking. And that can be in a village, in a town, or in a city centre location. And that's, again, why properly funding councils to to carry on that investment at the local level is so important.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. That's all we have time for, I'm afraid. Hugh, Karen and Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a fascinating discussion about the importance of placemaking, the benefits it brings and the challenges that cities face in undertaking projects. You've been listening to a special Spotlight podcast in partnership with PwC. You can read PwC's Good Growth for Cities Index in full at pwc.co.uk forward slash And you can check out our economic growth and regional development coverage at newstatesman.com forward slash spotlight. I'm Sarah Darwood and our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thanks for listening.